Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Facts Matter, brought to you by the Citizens Research Council of Michigan. Today, I'm here with Tim Mitchling. How are you, Tim? I'm doing well. How are you? I am great. Thanks for asking. So today, we're going to dive into mental health services in Michigan. Um, Tim here is a research associate with the Citizens Research Council of Michigan, um, and he kind of focuses on the mental health aspect in Michigan. So today we're going to talk about his piece um, entitled Michigan Still Falls Short on Mental Health Services. Um, Tim, can you give us a little background information on the mental health system in Michigan? Yeah, and you know, the title of the blog is Still Falls Short because we had a previous piece, Michigan Falls Short, um, and not much had changed in the in the years in between, but um, it kind of a 20,000 foot overview on, on the mental health system, if, if we want to call it that. Looking way back in history, we had, you know, a system of state asylums, as many states did, uh, and the care provided was not always evidence-based and not what we would consider humane. Um, that started to shift in the 60s, and we moved towards uh, a community-based approach to mental health and gradually phasing people out of, of the sort of asylum system of care. Uh, Unfortunately, community mental health was never really all that well funded um, on the one hand, so that creates some problems. The second thing is that this separating of, of mental health and substance abuse, you know, what we would call behavioral health issues away from other medical care um, doesn't match up with the science that we know now that, you know, what happens to us psychologically and socially and, and biologically and physiologically, these are all interconnected. But we have a, a system of treatment and even insurance in some cases where things have been completely separated into different spheres. Um, and so for behavioral health, we have some places where we have a substance abuse provider who's private, or we have a mental health provider, and that's what they do. We have our community mental health agencies, which um, have their own funding systems uh, that are separate from the Medicaid program um, on, on the state-funded side. And so it's, it's really fairly disjointed. Um, and then we do have, uh, in some cases, you know, hospital beds and others other things that are reserved for psychiatric uses. But um, to call it a system, I think is, is generous. And that's interesting you say that, Tim. So why do you think, or based on your research, why is Michigan falling short and having a, a strong mental health care system? Is it the lack of resources, the lack of funding, um, care providers? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so, I think if you look at the rest of the United States, it's it's maybe not fair to single Michigan out because I think a lot of states are falling short, if not all of them. Uh, but when we look at Michigan, um, it's all the things that you've mentioned. Um, I think it's it's this history of you know sort of having mental health be the separate other outside thing. Um, you know, issues with stigma, issues with recognition, um, and among politicians, among everyday people, uh, it's the reimbursement rates and, and payment, it's the number of providers that are available. So it's all of those sort of structural things, um, but it's also the rates that we're seeing that, you know, I released a report last year that showed that 
while mental health has become something we're talking about a lot with our youth in light of the COVID pandemic, really, if you look back the last 10, 15 years, things have been escalating year after year after year. And so it, it's not a new problem. It's just a problem that sort of reached a critical breaking point. And the data are similar for adults that we're seeing more issues. And so, you know, it, it's, it's fair to ask, why are we seeing those issues? And I think there are a lot of reasons and that's still being researched, that's still being debated, but um, we can definitely say that there are probably things culturally and socially that are happening that are causing people to have more mental health issues. And that's sort of in the broad public policy domain. And then within you know, public health, um, Citizens Research Council, and, a couple of years ago also released a report that we haven't invested in public health in Michigan. So we don't have much investment in data collection and we don't have the kind of investment we need in screening and prevention for, you know, everything from infectious diseases, you know, like COVID-19 to mental health conditions and, and chronic illnesses. And so when you see rates of illness increasing, um, it's not, necessarily that that's unavoidable, but we haven't invested in the kind of prevention strategies uh, and population health strategies to keep that bay. And so now we've reached the point where there are lots of people who need care and treatment. And on the severe side, the hospital beds and psychiatric beds are not available. And on the more basic side, um, it's hard just to get you know, counseling appointments or to make sure that we have enough social workers and psychologists and counselors and nurses in our schools and in our communities, particularly in rural areas and in some of our larger cities. And having those resources are so important. Um, I know a few um, therapists actually and psychiatrists personally, um, and they were, they were mentioning to me that even during COVID throughout the pandemic, they've seen an increase and, and patients coming to them for, for care and them just being overloaded by the books. Um, and I just wanted to, to explain a little bit about, you provided some diagrams that kind of show where Michigan ranks um, and the kind of treatment that you know these hospitals and other um, facilities are able to provide. Can you explain those diagrams and graphs a little bit? Yeah, if you look at the most recent blog, um, a lot of the focus there was was looking at the availability of providers. And if we look at, you know, the number of psychiatrists and psychiatric nurse practitioners, psychologists, counselors, you know, the whole gamut of, of behavioral health providers, we really are, are seeing that we have a shortage of, of providers at this point relative to the amount of need there is in the state. Um, and that shortage is made worse by what we would call a maldistribution. And so if you're like me and you live in the Ann Arbor area, um, you might be a little lucky because there are more um, psychiatrists and other providers per capita than in other parts of the state. So you might have a little easier time finding appointments, although anecdotally, I think even in Washtenaw County, um, there's still a lot of problems. But then when you look at other parts of the state, we have counties where there are no psychologists, no child psychiatrists um, at all. And so you have to drive great distances. Um, telehealth has helped with that to an extent. Um, but, you know, in parts of the state, they're just, there's no one to take care of you. Um, and that's, 
really startling. Tim, what do you think needs to happen to improve the response to mental health illnesses? Oh, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> so I think, you know, it's addressing all of those problems that I, that, that I already talked about. So on the one hand, um, making sure that people have access to treatment and services, um, and beyond that, making sure that those services and, and that the treatment is high quality, um, that it's effective, and that it's equitable and accessible to all Michigan residents. And so I think that that starts with addressing mental health parity um, and ensuring you know, that everyone has access to, to the services that they need. Um, as I mentioned, with the provider shortages and, and distribution, there are a lot of different strategies that we've put forth in, in various Citizens Research Council publications. Um, so loan forgiveness for practitioners, particularly those practicing in areas where we have shortages, um, is one strategy. I think that addresses the, the end of the pipeline. Um, it doesn't really address the start of the pipeline. And so we want to be looking, you know, certainly at the undergrad level in community colleges, but even in high schools, looking for students that maybe are interested in a, in a career in social work or in psychology um, and making the career pathways very clear um, and, and trying to recruit and engage students in, in doing that kind of work. Um, one idea that I've had is to, you know, look at our high schoolers, find students who are really interested in behavioral health careers and maybe who have aptitude in addition to the interest, possibly working with their community colleges in some sort of dual enrollment situation to train those students as peer counselors so that they can work within their own high school um, and start to become involved and then you know, they would have earned some college credit that they could be applied to further study if they find that that's a field that they want to work in. So that's sort of addressing the pipeline and addressing some of our school mental health needs, where certainly we want trained and credentialed professionals, but sometimes, the, you know, the evidence shows that peer counselors are really valuable in, in behavioral health as well. Um, so that's, that's sort of the one side of it where we're talking about treatment. And obviously, there are numerous barriers to treatment we want to address. The other side is that we don't always, we don't want to only talk about, you know, kind of our supply of treatment, but also the demand for services, if you kind of put on an e economics hat for a second. And so that gets back to what I was saying about investment in data collection and public health, so that we can really have a multi-tiered approach um, using population health models so that we provide screening, we provide levels of support within the community for people who may be having some trouble experiencing stress, having you know some depressive symptoms before those things escalate into a personal crisis. So we want to address things you know at multiple levels of prevention as well. And when it comes to identifying certain aspects of, of mental illness, you mentioned earlier that there is a kind of a bias in equity and quality care. Do you think that that's a insurance provider thing or is it a Michigan legislative thing? What do you think that legislat legislatures can do to ensure that Michiganders are receiving the, the access, have access to equity and quality care? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a, a multi, 
level problem as well. I think it, some of it certainly happens at the insurance level in terms of what the reimbursement rates are, what you know is or isn't covered, um, particularly because of the shortage of, of mental health providers. For people with private insurance, they may you know, they may even have trouble finding a primary care physician, but, you know, it, even if they have their sort of medical needs met, um, some of the behavioral health providers may be out of network. And so that can create problems when you have these big geographic disparities in the distribution of providers. Um, on the sort of public side of, of medical care, you know, I mentioned we have these separate community mental health agencies. And so our mental health treatment, when we look at public insurance, is, is very fragmented. Um, and that fragmented payment leads to fragmented treatment. Um, and often people with mental health issues also have, you know, physical health issues because both are just health issues. They co-occur, they feed into one another, depression, diabetes, heart disease, anxiety, all of these things, they go together. And if you don't treat the whole person, you know, they're worse off in the long run. Uh, but unfortunately, there's no incentive for our providers to really work together because it's not historically what they've done. And so we can create incentives for that, but the biggest incentive would come from making payment contingent upon that and having um, you know, a uh, integration of medical and behavioral care models so that really mental health and behavioral health is all a part of our, our primary care and our healthcare. Um, and we don't have the payment systems to support that. Uh, we don't have the social and culture to support that. Um, I mean, and when I say that, uh, there's there's been lots of progress. Um, we're doing much better today than we were 10 or, or 20 years before. So I, I don't want to discount the, the progress that's been made in working toward integration. But if you look at the situation from what does an ideal place look like and where are we, we're really not there in, in terms of really integrating care. Um, and that's also reflected in the training that that people get where, you know, for nurses and physicians, behavioral health is not a big part of the training, even though it has a really huge impact on people's health outcomes. And do you think officials in Lansing have paid enough attention or on the fact that mental health um, in Michigan has kind of fallen by the wayside, if you will? Yeah, I think it was an ignored issue for a while. And, you know, there's so much stigma around mental health, or at least there has been in the past, which I mentioned. And so I think if you're looking back even just five or 10 years, mental health wasn't discussed that much, or when it was discussed, it was, I hate to call it, you know, a red herring, but it's sort of, you know, it, it would, was brought up to distract from, from other issues. Uh, and now I think the legislature and the, the governor, you know, everyone is starting to talk about mental health. You know, it's a it's a big enough issue that it took some real estate on the most recent state of the state speech. Um, it's something that the legislative leaders in both parties have been talking about and introducing bills um, and working on. But finding that bipartisan agreement and sort of finding the kind of long-term solutions that we need, um, that's sort of a mixed bag. I think there's been some really great work that's been done, but there's still more to do.
and even as you mentioned Tim um it's starting to be seen more at from a young age can you talk about um the report you released last year on uh youth, the state of the youth mental health yeah so as i mentioned that report found that youth mental health concerns have been increasing you know almost doubling really in the last decade um we're seeing higher rates of depression higher rates of anxiety um higher prevalence of you know everything from eating disorders and self-harm uh to uh various behavioral disorders in the classroom uh substance abuse uh as well as uh, unfortunately youth suicide has also increased um and is the the second leading cause of death for for young people in the united states uh just after automobile fatalities and so it, that's a huge problem um and our report looked at some of the systemic things that you and i have already been talking about in terms of insurance and availability of providers the other thing that we really honed in on is the importance of school-based health services um and that can happen in sort of two ways uh i think we have in Michigan, some of the lowest rates in, in terms of the number of providers to the number of students they have to care for, some of the lowest rates of, of counselors and psychologists and especially nurses uh, and social workers as well. And so something positive that's come out of that research is that we're now seeing new money in Lansing uh, being allocated to, to hire more social workers and hire more counselors and, and psychologists and nurses in our schools. So that's really encouraging. And that's something that I've been really fortunate to work with uh, with legislators and, and the governor's staff in Lansing and, and discussing these problems. Um, the other side of that is that, you know, we can have our school employed health professionals, um, but they still don't necessarily have the time to do one-on-one -on -one treatment with students who need more intensive support or who maybe would benefit from psychotherapy. And so uh, what we have are called school-based health centers, and these are often sponsored by a local public health department or a federally qualified health center or a health system, a hospital system, where they can set up, I guess for lack of a better descriptor, like a satellite clinic that is within the school where they provide a whole range of primary care services and mental health services that students can have access to right there on site. And we found that that reduces a lot of the barriers. It, it makes it easier to schedule appointments. It takes the you know, transportation issues out of the picture and some of the insurance issues out of the picture. Um, so that increases more equity. And the visibility of treatment within the school um, also helps to reduce stigma. It normalizes that behavior of saying it's okay to say I need help and to go and seek treatment. And so I think these are really complementary things where you have schools employing health professionals to work at kind of the school level or classroom level, providing support to your teachers and administrators, making you know the, the environment of the school a better place, screening kids, finding out what kind of supports are necessary, um, trying to address things like bullying and racism and discrimination within the school that can have an effect on students' mental health and behavior. And then you also then have a school-based health center that can provide treatment when needed. Um, 
And so I think that's that's a really important complementary approach that's necessary to address what we're seeing. That's so important to me because like you said, a lot of it stems from environmental factors as well as biological factors. Um, that students don't even probably don't even realize that they're dealing with until they actually sit down and talk to somebody. So that school-based care is is so important, um, especially considering that they might not have access to the proper insurance or like the proper resources to get outside care outside of school. So that's a very great point, Tim. Um, and is there anything that you would like to add as it pertains to mental health services in Michigan or the legislator, you know, advancing mental health services and uh, legislation on that? Yeah, sure. You know, obviously our youth are important and adolescence is a really sensitive period. And so it's, that's a great place to address a lot of these issues because if we don't address them, you know, they're going to follow these students throughout the rest of their life. They affect their educational outcomes. It affects their, you know, workforce preparedness, their ability to go and, and find a job. And I think there are a lot of vulnerable populations that we need to pay attention to as well, like our foster care uh, children um, and, and, and our LGBTQ students who, who face really high rates of, of mental health issues and, and suicide. And so I think that's essential, but that also isn't to say that it's not important to also address the needs of adults and especially older adults who are a group, you know, our, our seniors in our nursing homes and or in communities who also have really high rates of, of mental health uh, disorders and high rates of depression who may be adjusting to having to care for themselves or to losing some of the control that they used to have in their lives, uh, losing spouses, losing friends. And so really we wanna take care of people, you know, from throughout all periods in, in their, you know, life and, and development. And so we still need obviously more providers, more services, more prevention and making sure that we're not just asking for more money because money doesn't solve everything. We want to make sure that those approaches are efficient and effective. And that means having data and investing in data isn't something that's always, you know, kind of the, the sexy thing for legislators to do. Um, it, it, there's no quick win they can take back to their, their own legislative districts. Oh, you know, we invested more money in data and, you know, their constituents say, well, what am I getting out of that? Well, what your constituents are getting out of that is knowing that we have the data to say that the other public taxpayer dollars that we're spending on these various programs are being spent well, and that they're solving problems that are important to the community. And I think mental health is one of those things that we really need to address this because it affects all aspects of our life. It affects our, you know, our overall health and well-being as individuals, as members of our families, as members of our community, um, as members of, of the state and citizens of the state. It affects our ability to perform well at work or at school or in our other social functions and responsibilities, whether we're parents or caregivers. So if we don't address that human well-being, um, we're never going to have a strong economy. We're never going to have strong social networks within the state. Um, and we're not going to have a high quality of life. And so I think a lot of that 
it, it comes back to the need to address uh, mental and behavioral health. And thank you so much for that, Tim. That's all the time we have on this episode of Facts Matter. I had a great time sitting down with Tim talking about mental health. Until next time. Mm-hmm.